Welcome to Immigration 360. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the story of immigration. I have a very, very special guest with me here today, Dora Rodriguez. Dora is an advocate and an activist for migrant rights. Dora is a survivor of the 1980 tragedy that took place at Ajo, Arizona, where a group of Salvadorians fled the civil war in their home country of El Salvador and resulted in 13 deaths, including three minors. This led to Dora being one of the first people that the sanctuary movement in Tucson, Arizona assisted. Dora currently resides in Tucson, Arizona with her husband and is the mother of five children and three grandchildren. Today, she is the director of a nonprofit organization, Salva Vision, an organization that provides aid and support to asylum seekers and detainees in Arizona and border towns, and also aid to those who have been deported. Hi, Dora. It's so great to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. This is nice. I'm happy you're here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> the pleasure's mine. Thank you. So as we've talked about, my main component of this podcast is talking about migration and hearing it from the perspective of someone who's migrated. Yeah, so would you like to share your story with our audience? Yeah, I mean, um, sometimes it takes a, a while, you know, to just to come up with all the details. Yeah. In, uh, in, but yeah, I was only 19 years old. It happened in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my country, we had a civil war at that time. And uh, oh my God, you're so young. You were in a thought, you know, it's been so long, time flies, but the trauma is still there and the, and the feelings and memories, they're still with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1980, well, I graduated in 1979 from high school. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I graduated in in uh, our graduations are in November in our in our country, and we I you know we had a party, a high school celebration, and everything. And at that night, uh, pretty much the civil war started because in the middle of the night, right before the party was over, they we heard gunshots and bombing everywhere, and it was very crazy. The lights went off. So we hide under tables, and this is a young crowd. I mean, I was 19, so mm-hmm. there's my fellow friends and you know, students that they, we just graduated. So out of that, I, you know, after that, I was thinking, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life in here because I wanna go to the university. I wanted it to become a social worker mm-hmm. in my country. And, um, but the days went by and we start seeing more um, attacks from the government to young people, especially young people like my age and, you know, between the 20s and and just people who wanted it to fight for justice, you know, and they were calling us almost like gorillas right away mm-hmm. or that you were the enemy of the government and without any fault, you know, because I was not, I was not in any way, shape, or form against the government. I, you know, I was just a a 19-year-old girl who had dreams, who wanted to go to school, become a social worker. I never, ever imagined coming to the United States, ever, 
Um, I had family here. My father was in Phoenix because he left us when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I would say, you know, I would like to go and find my dad. But it was just, you know, a say. So I never had in my mind that I was going to leave my country, my mother, my family, you know, my brothers, my sister. It never crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. But when when this, the war started, you know, I, it was very, it, every day was dangerous. Every day was um, um, somebody got killed that you knew, and that was the fear. So... I, when I was young, I belonged to a group of, uh, uh, for church. I have always been involved in, you know, in different groups. Mm -hmm. <laughs> always had and anything that had to do with helping people, anything that had to do help your community. I was involved since I was a kid. I was in the Boy Scouts when I was a kid, a Boy Scouts leader at, through the time in my high school. And then I belonged to a group of uh, my church and a Catholic church. Well, the, the youth group was led by um, Marinol Sisters, mm -hmm. which are funded in the United States. And um, we met, you know, almost every night or every other night, just the young kids getting together and talk about activities that we're going to do in the community. So... But when the war started, the government started attacking um, people that, from the United States, which is really weird how that happened because <laughs> the United States had a big part of this war. Mm -hmm. You know, they really, I mean, their finance are work. They killed, what, 75,000 people. So... Our nun, the, she was a nun, the nun that was our leader, she was threatened. So we were very scared that she was going to get killed. So one night we had a meeting and we were walking home. When I got home, the leader of my group, um, Rene was his name, he got murdered, ran in front of uh, his grandma's. So I got home and I heard gunshots. And it was, I remember it so clear, it was like, 8.30 or 9, right mm -hmm. after we finished our meeting. And it was like the soldiers were waiting for him. But I don't really don't think that Rene was part of any groups against the government. But what happened is he was the leader of our Catholic youth group. And that was probably enough, you know, for them to come after him. Oh, wow. So they killed him, and right after that, the weeks went by, you know, and my fear grew and grew, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then, uh, of course, my mother communicated with her brother that lived here in the United States, and and I guess they talked, and he told her that he would have helped me if I wanted to leave my country. And my other siblings were younger, so they were not so much threat as my age, you know, and um, so... I left in 1980 in January. I did my mm -hmm. first trip. I went to, I came with five people. It was only uh, three guys and two, uh, me and another girl, one of the girlfriends of the guys that was bringing us up here. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we were young and we left and we said, okay, let me get my backpack, my, you know, just simple things that I need and we leave. And we left and the journey was almost seven days 
Um, I don't remember going through so much horrendous things like people does at this moment, you know, through Mexico. And, and maybe it was because he knew how t this guy that we were traveling uh, was the boyfriend of my friend who mm -hmm. he lived here in the United States. So he used to go back and forth. And I imagine that he knew the way mm -hmm. because he was guiding us what towns were to go, okay. <clears throat> which buses or that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we got to Tijuana, Mexico with the seven days of our journey. <laughs> we got there at night and it was very dark. And the first thing I remember seeing is the huge, huge wall, huge. It was already there. Tijuana had already a wall. Mm. And I remember that they had a rope and they said, you're gonna go, you're gonna climb this rope and I thought, what? I mean, I never thought I was going to get to that. <laughs> but we did. We climbed the, the wall with the rope. And I don't remember how high it was, but it was really big, you know. So um, <clears throat> we climb and we jump to the... Because when we got to Tijuana, he hired a guide. So that's the practice, you know, because he didn't know how to cross us through Tijuana to get to the other United States. Mm -hmm. So he hired this guy, I remember that. And um, and he wanted it to just make it easier for us by jumping that wall and getting into that rope. Mm -hmm. So we jump and I remember so clearly that when we jump in the other side, as soon as we hit the ground, the lights came on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my God, and it was Border Patrol. And that was the first time I ever, ever encountered uh, an officer. You know, I can you imagine? It's just no. like you're out of your country. You're this young. You're very naive because you don't know stuff. And I'm like terrified that what's going on, that I'm going to get arrested, that I, I knew I was doing something against the United States law, which was crossing illegal. Mm -hmm. But I, it was no other way for me to come to this country fleeing yeah. a war, yeah. you know. So, yeah, we got caught, we got processed, and I remember within about four days, I was back in my country. At that time, they put you in a plane, and they send you in a plane. And, and there was lots and lots of people in the airplane, not just me. Mm. But we were dirty, full of mud, our shoes were all duty our clothes was wet and then and I got back mm. so when I got back in it was the middle of January of 1980 that's when Monsignor Romero got killed which he was one of the big icons in El Salvador a priest you yeah. know that was fighting in in organizing against the government and organizing for people you know educating them of their rights and uh, and he got murdered. Mm -hmm. So I was at my mom's house, and I remember that day, and I was terrified. I thought, oh, God, this is getting worse. And now I, I was more scared because I thought they know that I left, and they, you know, they're probably going to question or come to my house and say, oh. why do you left? Why do you have to hide? Why do you have to escape the country? That kind of stuff. So I was very scared. Mm -hmm. So in, in about within two months later, we, uh, I got a call from my 
again from my uncle and my aunt in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I wanted it to try it again because they were scared. Because when I went back, I was at my house. I wouldn't leave the house. I was very scared. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. But they said, well, maybe this time is better if you hire a guy, a, a smuggler in El Salvador. Because mm-hmm. those guys are terrible, but they're very popular in our countries. Mm-hmm. You know, luring people with great stories and how it's so easy to cross. Yeah. So, uh, and I remember one of my mother's um, half-brother was in El Salvador, and my cousin, he was only 17, and we all three decided to take the journey again, but we are, we were going to pay this time a, a smuggler from El Salvador. Mm-hmm. So our family in the United States helped me with $2,500 to pay these guys back in the day. You know, it was... Back in the days too, it's a lot of money. Yeah, and um, and yeah, I was ready to do the journey again around the last week of March. We left, and then at that time, it was uh, forty-five Salvadorians. It was not only me and my couple friends; it was a group of forty-five that we met in the capital mm-hmm. and with the smugglers, and they were giving us all this guidance. You know how what we're gonna do. So at that time, I realized I was under their direction. And um, the first fear, horrible thing that happened that I remember we got to um, to the border of Guatemala in, Mexi- in Mexico, mm-hmm. and it's a river. And we didn't have passports, so we could not cross Guatemala to Mexico because we didn't have no passports. Mm. They will allow us to cross. So they put us in these big tubes in this river and tied us up, and we crossed the river in those tubes. It's scary because the river is so fast, and oh the people gosh. still practice that with children. They still do that. And it's been 40 years of my story, and mm-hmm. that's still happening. So I remember as a 19-year-old thinking, what in the heck? Mm-hmm. This is not right. And then they will put us in the most ugly, run-down, nasty hotels, motels, because all they wanted to do was save money. Yeah. But, you know, you think about it, and I think, oh, my God, each person, each of one of us was paying these guys $2,500, and it was 45 of us at that time. So, anyway, we, we did the journey again, and we were in the bus, and in the middle, you know, when we got more north of Mexico, they would uh, drop us off like in the dark when it was when they knew that we were gonna get to a checkpoint in Mexico. Mm-hmm. They will say get out to all of us with mm-hmm. women with children because we have a lot of women with children in the bus mm-hmm. in the 45 of us. So we will get out and and they will make us walk like hours and hours in the desert in the in Mexico, trying to avoid the checkpoint. Oh, so wow. it, and it was hot already. It was you know desert, which is just very scary because you just don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. But you know we did it, and then within five hours walking, six hours we end up in the other side of the road, and there was no more checkpoint. The bus wouldn't be there, and then we'll hop in the bus again. Mm-hmm. So they knew exactly what to do. But we got all the way to Yuma, Arizona. And the night that we got there, 
you know they did the whole thing again they told us how we were gonna cross we walked for a couple hours in the desert and then we got to a big um, how do you call where the water runs under and it's a dish um, it's almost like a canal oh okay yeah. a canal so the the water was running under really 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 fast mm -hmm. and the canal was you know I'll say like two feet distance where we where we would have to jump or I don't know distances but it was wide you know that we had to do a big jump to get to the other side like over the canal over the canal okay okay so god forbid anybody would have get in time to get to the other side would have go oh. to the canal and you will see women with children jumping that thing in the other side and it was late at night Oh my gosh. So the only light we had was the little light they were guiding us to. So luckily we all jumped that thing. We all jumped those canals. And Yuma is very popular because it's a, you know, cultural, I mean, as um, they do a lot of irrigations, you know, because mm. they, they have a lot of plantations in there. Mm. And I remember we jumped when the last one jumped, the lights came on again. Came on again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so oh close. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was very sad because these guys, the smugglers, were giving the kids medicine to go to sleep so they wouldn't make a noise. But one baby woke up and started crying. So, of course, Border Patrol was, you know, taking care of that area. Mm. So that as soon as we finished jumping the canal and going through all the whole, you know, ordeal of, you know, walking, jumping, very afraid, the kids getting medication, the women so scared, we get caught again. So the lights came on and there everybody started running all over. The smugglers, of course, you know, they already had some Mexican smugglers. They run, they know the way and they escape. And here we are, all these Salvadorian people not knowing what the heck to do because we got caught again. They left you? They the left. Oh, that's very common practice. Oh, my God. Yeah, even the Salvadorian smugglers left us. They left. They disappeared. We don't know how. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got to the office or the Border Patrol, it was just us. We didn't have no guys. And we keep saying, well... Because they know, you know, they knew that there was no way we we're going to do that alone. Yeah. They had it to be someone telling us what to do. But those guys were not there. So wow. I get back to my country again for the second time. Mm -hmm. But when, when you pay these guys, they tell you, well, we're going to give you a second chance for, for the same price. Mm. So in July of 1980, well, it was middle of June. They told us I was back home with my mom, hiding second time. I didn't want to go anywhere. I did not even talk to friends or anything like that because I was terrified mm -hmm. that now for sure they're going to come and find me, right? Because they would the, the government, the soldiers would come in the middle of the night and just snatch young people out of their house and disappear and kill them for no reason. So I keep thinking, oh my God, when is my turn? So, but we waited and then in the late week, almost the last week of June, I remember we get a call from the smuggler and said, okay, get ready, we're gonna go back. 
we're gonna try one more time we have the buses we have everything ready so we did the same thing but by then the weather was extremely hot mm. you know we I didn't know what the Arizona desert looked like I didn't know that the temperature can reach up to 120 when you are out there in the desert yeah. and uh, I don't even know if they knew you know so they brought us to the area of Oregon Pipe in Sonoita which is the west area of Arizona. Okay. And it's the Oregon Pipe Mon Monument, National Monument. It's a beautiful desert, but it's deadly because mm. it gets very hot and there's a lot of traffic of migrants in there. So I didn't know that, right? So we came after seven days in the journey in the bus and, you know, doing exactly what they told us to do, like getting off the bus again, walking in the desert in Mexico, avoiding the the federales, avoiding the law, you know, because we all didn't have passports. So they knew that if we get caught, we wouldn't go back to El Salvador. Mm -hmm. So we uh, we get to Sonoyita and then uh, they hire these smugglers from that area, which is very common. They hire a, a, a young guy and his father. And, uh, you know, they luckily they separated the women with the children and they sent them to Yuma to cross. But us, the younger, you know, the younger people with no kids, but in my group was a pregnant woman. Mm. And, uh, and there was a 12, a 14, and a 16, three sisters in wow. my group. So, you know, we just waited in there, did whatever they asked us to do, and then we slept in the back of a truck for one night. Mm -hmm. So hot, it was horrible. We didn't know really where, where we were. I mean, we didn't even know the town or anything. Mm -hmm. All we knew that they were waiting for the right time to cross us. And at that time, they didn't have the wall that is now there. Mm -hmm. They had a barbed wire fence. So it was really easy to jump. And uh, the next night, you know, they had us all night waiting, all day in the heat outside, and under a tree in that town of Sonorita. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's a very remote area where they take their people. And they said, uh, it was July, I think it was July, June 30th of 1980. And they said, okay, we're gonna cross this night and we jumped the fence. They never told us that we needed lots of water. They never told us what kind of shoe, shoes we should wear in the desert mm. or what kind of clothing. All they told us is that it was just gonna be like a, an hour walk and then we're gonna be in the, other, in the United States and then the helicopter was gonna come and pick us up and take us in a plane to Los Angeles and everybody's gonna be happy and reunited with their families. It's the most horrendous lie they, they can tell you. And when you're so naive, you know, you're in my group, there was women with high heels walking in that desert. And, wow. and some women, they had their rollers and their hair because they were gonna look beautiful for their husband when they got to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And they were with luggages of clothes. All of us had their, their luggage because 
they didn't tell us, and each of us only had one gallon of water. Well, that gallon of water didn't last. It lasted almost like four hours, and then we were in trouble. So we started walking in a single line in the dark, dark desert where the weather was at least 115 oh, wow. on the night. And then as soon as we started walking, following the guy way out there, you know, I was almost in the back, um, we started getting uh, we started getting hurt by the cactus, and there is a cactus called Choya cactus, mm -hmm. and that is really a mean one because it jumps. If you go closer with the body heat, it jumps in you mm -hmm. and it gets you. Because mm -hmm. if somebody wants to get it out of your skin, it almost comes out with your skin, and uh, and we didn't know all that. So we, as soon as we start walking, you start. I remember start hearing all this screaming everywhere because it was getting all of us because we didn't have the appropriate shoes or mm -hmm. clothing. So it is a, you know, it is a very um, hard story to remember, but mm -hmm. I mean, it's been so long and it still is that I, the more I share, the more I remember in details, you know, because the first night we walked about four hours and, uh, and then we ran out of water the first night. And then by midnight, we had the first person that died of heart attack. Oh uh, one God. of the women, she was a little heavy and she couldn't do it anymore. And she had a heart attack with the walk and the heat. So we knew we were in trouble. And the guide, he knew he was lost. At the very beginning, he got lost but he knew he was closer to Mexico. So he had the atrocity to leave his father with us. His father was in his late 60s, mm. and he left him with us and told us, oh, I gotta go find help. I gotta go see what's going on because I don't know if we're going in the right direction. So we knew we were more in trouble. Yeah. And he left us, and he never came back. He never came back. So his father wow. walked with us. And uh, Mateo was his name. And he thought that he was guiding us, but he was lost too. So, you know, to make a long story short, we were lost for almost four days in the desert. And by the end of our journey, we were drinking, you know, pee from everybody, uh, shaving lotion, we were drinking anything that we could get a hold of it yeah. to survive. But by the fifth day, <clears throat> July 5th, we already had, I would say, about 10 people dead around me. And uh, the three sisters that I told you, they were my best friends, and mm -hmm. they wanted it. I mean, they looked after me like a big sister. Oh. And I failed them. You know, but I was in the same shape. Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk. I couldn't even think right. I don't think, and um, <clears throat> and but I heard them one by one when they were dying, desperate in that desert, asking for, for help, asking for water, asking for mercy that they didn't want to die in that area. But they did. They were all around me, and the women who was pregnant, she also died in the desert, in the tragedy. So by the time we were found by Border Patrol, um, it was, 
I mean, according to them, you know, all of us wouldn't be dead if they wouldn't have found us within an hour, half an hour, you know. So the 12 people and me, they survived. We, luckily, we made it, you know. Uh, when they found me, I was under a bush. And um, I was, I think, just with my shorts and a tank top. And um, I didn't know where I was completely dehydrated, I had blisters all over my mouth, mm -hmm. my throat, my feet. I have cactuses every part of my body, you know, and they picked us up and thank God they rescued us. Um, and the reason they found us, because it's, uh, two days before, a girl and a guy made it out mm -hmm. at the, at the high, in the high, up to the highway but they never told Border Patrol that it was more people in the desert lost because they thought they were helping us. And oh. uh, finally they got the truth out of them and they told them because you know there is more people out there, they're not gonna make it. It was the hottest summer ever in history in Arizona. And, um, and sure enough, you know, 13 people died. So when they found us, um, they they had, I mean, helicopters, right? Like the smugglers has told us they were be helicopters, but they were the border patrol helicopters. Mm. But this one of the smugglers from El Salvador, he died within the group, and another one got arrested, and he spent like 15 years in jail here in the United States because mm. it was a trial after that. But going back to the the night that they night or daytime I don't even remember what it was but I think I was already uh, dying because for what I was told it was around noon when they found us and I just remember seeing a beautiful beautiful sky that I had never seen even in my life or now ever never mm -hmm. just the most beautiful beautiful sky with stars I mean, millions and millions. That's what I was seeing when I was picked up. And uh, and then they took us to the hospital of the city of Bajo, a little town of Bajo, Arizona. It's a beautiful town, you know, and I call it my second home because it's, to me it's my second chance. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a hospital by then, and they took us to the hospital. And we spent like seven days uh, getting better. And after we got better, they released us, and but none of us had families here, so they had to find sponsors for us. But they brought us to Tucson, Arizona, mm -hmm. and I spent two days in jail, <laughs> terrified. I had never in my life been in jail, yeah. you know. But uh, I was just so thankful that I was alive, and um, they kept us tonight while they were asking, you know, the city to come up with sponsors for us. And it was so beautiful. The city of Tucson, you know, they just welcome us uh, the night that they release us, but because they had it, the churches had it to come together to pay a bond. We, they were asking for $7,500 for each of us oh at that God. time to, to release us. But and then they lowered the bond to like 2000 each. You know, but it was 13 of us. Yeah. So who was going to come out with the money? But thank God the whole um, um, churches in town got together and they paid to get us out. 
because it was a, a tragedy that has had never happened in Arizona, mm. and uh, it was just scary for everybody. I'm mean, alerting for everybody that this was happening in our borders, yeah. that we were fleeing a war, that we were needed help, and um, because the borders were not open for us to come in legally, mm -hmm. we had it to go through the desert. It's just the same story that is repeated at this moment. Mm -hmm. And it's, we're talking 40 years before, yeah. you know, 41 years. So I came to Tucson. I stayed with a, a, a family who took me in, and they're still my friends. And I stayed in Tucson. I never left. Yeah, I never left. And yeah. my cousin who survived, thank God, my night, uh, he was at that time 17. He survived. He lives in Los Angeles. And my uncle, he also survived, but he passed away um, years later of AIDS. Mm -hmm. He contracted AIDS and he died here, but he survived the tragedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I, you know, I rooted myself in Tucson. Yeah. And I never went anywhere. And I got, I got very old in Tucson. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, what a story. Thank you so much for sharing and being so open and your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I don't even have the words to say, but like, honestly, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're here in Tucson. I'm glad you're thank here. Thank you. Yes, and you know, I um, I did go to school and I get, got my dream with, that mm -hmm. I had in El Salvador. I became a social worker. And I worked for many, many years in this town, giving my best. Mm -hmm. I married a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> I have five kids, and now I am a grandma of three. Oh, and it's beautiful, you know, and um, it's just I was giving that chance. But like I tell you, you know, I, it never goes away. It's with you. And I am now with a mission, and I have always been part of uh, the sanctuary that started in Tucson mm. in the 80s to help uh, migrants from El Salvador and Guatemala due to the war, civil wars. And mm. I have always been involved. And now I have my own organization, you know, and it's been around for almost six years now. Wow. Yeah. With the same vision, you know, to help migrants and I see my story repeated every single day mm -hmm. and their stories, you know, but I mean, I can tell them I walk your shoes. <laughs> I know what it takes and no one really trusts me. No one leaves their country just because they want to come for an adventure. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a reason. And most of them is a survival, you know, either because you are very, very poor and you don't have no food to put on the table for your family or because they're chasing you to kill you. Yeah. You know, so everybody has a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an important part to include because like there are so many misconceptions about like leaving and like coming to the U.S. And right. the reality is you're leaving your home, your culture, your like language, your food, your like everything your yeah. life yeah so 
I guess going off of that, what was life like in El Salvador before the war? And what do you miss? You know, it was beautiful. Yeah. I was um, I was never rich. I was raised um, in a poor, very poor family, pretty much with a single mom. Um, but I had what I needed, you know, and what I knew I needed. You know, I didn't know I needed luxuries. You know, I remember doing my homework with uh, candlelight, mm -hmm. you know, when I was growing up, but I was happy. I miss that. I miss that my summers when I was already 10 year old were not having this luxury vacation. My summers were going to the coffee fields and pick coffee mm -hmm. with my grandma. And uh, it was fun, you know, but it was work. I was working <laughs> at 10, but I was yeah. having fun. Yeah. You know, and um, for me it was, oh, I make a little money so I can buy me a little present in Christmas or yeah. help my mom to buy us a, a new little dress, that kind of stuff, you know. So life was beautiful in El Salvador, and it's been 41 years, and I tell you, I miss it. Yeah, I, I uh, uh, And um, it's real weird because you'll think, oh, my goodness, after all these years and your family here and your children here and everything here, but that's who you are. Mm -hmm. They're your roots. Your that's, roots are there. Yeah, yeah that's, forever that's, will that's, be there. Right, right. Yeah. In your language, you uh -huh. know. And uh, it took me a while to learn English, <laughs> and I'm still learning. I, you know, sometimes I get stuck. <laughs> I get stuck in Spanish, so I understand. It's it's like the yeah. <laughs> it's hard learning two oh, languages. Oh God, and your brain. I still, you yeah. had to see me when I had to go back and forth. I thought, oh my God. Oh, I do. I, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> And sometimes I think I'm translating and I translate to my wonderful volunteers in Spanish and uh, I translate and, and then I speak in them and no, I, I translate them in Spanish and then I talk into them in English or something and they looked at me like, what, what are you doing? It comes out Spanglish. <laughs> it's just beautiful. So... I love Spanglish. Yeah, yeah. It is a rough one. But, um, you know, it's, it's been quite a journey. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and how do you hold on to like your roots like El Salvador what do you do that keeps it present every day yeah you, you know um well first of all I mean I have my 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 sister my family uh -huh. my mama just passed away about a month and a half oh I'm so sorry so, yeah so I was there I, w I went to El Salvador mm -hmm. luckily I went before she passed and we spent good time together we ate a lot of good food they would like, and, you know, we had nice conversations. And then a week and a half later after I came back, she passed. So I had mm -hmm. it to go back. And um, every time I go to El Salvador, I bring something with me, you know, the yeah. smell of the food, the, the rain, mm -hmm. and all those things. And um, I think for my children, that now that they're were born and raised in here in Arizona in Tucson you know mm -hmm. I mean they have now their own culture their own life you know but I I have always tried to teach them um food because food is always awesome I mean you know yeah. different kind of food that we cook I mean we sit down and if it's just simple I cook beans and rice one day and they come here and they're in heaven because they think, oh my God, that reminds me so much of Abuelita, they oh, say. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me oh. so much of when we were kids. You know, so I hold on to that a yeah. lot. 
Yeah, yeah. That's so special. Yeah. I love food because food, (laughs) in general. Yeah, yeah. But the, like, power of, like, memories with food is awesome. Like, when you eat something, it's, like, everything. It's your brain. She'll switch. Yeah. Or if you're cooking, you know. Yes. And uh, this is going to be the first um, Thanksgiving that we're not going to have my mom. Mm. And she used to make every year because she traveled she would go back and forth you know to El Salvador and here Uh so when she was here she wouldn't make us this turkey special kind of turkey Mm. panes con pavo okay from El Salvador there oh my god the smell (laughs) the taste yeah so now my our tradition and our family is that I have to cook two turkeys Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had to cook the American turkey and then I had to cook the Salvadorian turkey. Oh, of course. <laughs> or of the course. kids, the, my, especially my son in law, one of them, there's just like, nope, there is no Thanksgiving without the Salvadorian turkey. <laughs> <laughs> and they get mad at me if I don't do that. Oh. So those things are awesome, you know, mm-hmm. there's tradition that you pass along. Yeah. And I tell them, you better get your recipe because when I'm gone, I don't know how you're going to cook your turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's really beautiful yeah I like that yeah that's awesome mm-hmm. so I guess going back to the organization you mentioned I would love to hear more about the work you're doing yeah, yeah. you know I um I remember I started getting involved with the sanctuary in Tucson mm-hmm. in the, like 1984 okay um four years after I came mm-hmm. you know I um I started coming off the shelf like you say you know I feel better I feel like oh my goodness I was given a second chance I better get involved in something so I looked for an organization and there it was and they're the ones that were so wrapped up helping my people you know coming from from our country because of the war mm-hmm. um so be, due to that I for all these years, in one way or another, I have been involved for a very long time. I have participated in putting water out in the desert because it's uh, the Samaritans in Tucson. They're like 20 years old, but they have been doing that for the longest time. Mm-hmm. So I, one way or another, I have always been like doing this, doing that. But in the past six years, it's like this baby was born, you know, my baby. Mm-hmm. I was invited to participate in the meeting with a consul from El Salvador, and they had a, a, a group going on, and their their mission was to help people who was deported back in our country uh, to create jobs, so they would have stayed in our country, so they wouldn't have to come back to the, this migrate, you know, again. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting to me. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll go in. Uh, this is probably what I have been looking for this for years. Mm. And, uh, well, it was good. And it lasts for like a year, the organization that they had. And then everybody went away. So I thought, hmm, well, the need is huge. And I learned so much of what was going on at this moment in here. Well. So I said, nobody's going to stop me. I just need to find people who want to come along with me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember talking to my daughter, my youngest daughter, who is now, you know, she graduated. She works in business and stuff. And I said, do you think this is crazy or can we continue with this organization? I don't really want it to die because this is something that is needed 
is my mission. I want to do this. And I said, sure, let's do it. So, you know, Salva Vision was born in, um, in six years ago in 2016. And it's been growing and growing and growing. We are so thankful for our volunteers. Our mission is pretty much um, educate awareness. Because to me, I want to reach as many people that I can back home. Mm. to talk to kids in high school, you know, anybody who wants to listen to my story or the atrocities of this journey or what will happen if you make that decision. Of course, people is the one that will make that choice, you know, always. But if you knew, you know something, maybe you save your life. So for me, awareness and education is very important. And it's part of our, my mission and our mission. Mm-hmm. And we also do a lot of awareness in the border towns, mm-hmm. you know, in our shelters, in uh, our resource center that now we have in this remote area. Because they, they need to know that if you are crossing the desert with 100 degrees or more, I mean, you need water, you need good shoes, and maybe it's not the best choice to make, right? I wish they said, I don't want to go that way. Mm-hmm. But again, I have to be so respectful of their, their, what they want to do, you know, because only they know what they want to take that journey or that risk. So that's one of our missions. And then the, we do a lot of awareness, like right now, you know, we're having these conversations. I want the the world to know what the reality of uh, a migrant is. Mm -hmm. Who is a migrant? You know, uh, we are people with souls, with needs, with dreams. You know, we're not just uh, this criminal, or how we are portrayed, you know, or somebody who's gonna come to this country and take somebody's job away, or somebody who's gonna come and hurt your children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like that. But you know, it's a lot of people does not know the truth. So I think education is very important. And I always welcome people because not everybody thinks or agree with me. And I don't expect that. It would be a really boring life, right? <laughs> a boring world if everybody agrees of the same subject or the same thing. So I like to have conversations. I invite people, I say, let's sit down, let's talk mm-hmm. and see what is it that you, you do not agree. And, and this issue, and immigration, and migrants, and illegals, like they call us, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And uh, good conversations happen. So we, we do that, and then the other uh, part of our mission is support. That means that we go to most of the shelters in the southern border, deliver donations. I am very happy and thankful that I have lots of organizations that are willing to help me to do this, you know, so I never do this alone. I will never take a full credit because you cannot do this by yourself. I work with Casa Salitas, which is a huge organization in Tucson, uh, to help me with, if I need a hundred toothbrushes to take to a shelter. Mm-hmm. They said, here, Dora, here they are, toothpaste. So whatever is the need, I pick them up, I drive, I travel, I drop them off. So that's our support. And now we have um, a great um, sanctuary, I call this place, as a resource center that we opened May 1st of 2021. 
in the remote area of Sasave, Sonora, is next to Sasave, Arizona, which is what, 2,500 people in that town, you know, mm -hmm. they leave their locals. Okay. But Border Patrol decided with Title 42 last year in March, when that came in place, they decided to start deporting people in that remote area where there's no buses, there is no shelters, there is no transportation. The only thing that our migrants will find in there is the cartel to get them back to them. So they were pretty much apprehending them in the areas of Sasave, which is in the Sonora Desert. Mm -hmm. Process them right in the spot. No chance for dual process. No chance to tell your story to anybody. Mm -hmm process them and take them back. We were receiving 100 to 150 migrants a day in any time of the day and night. So it was inhumane, it was cruel because with these people we saw children, women, men with their feet blistered, just go back, flashback, right? With their bodies full of thorns, you know, and dehydrated. So they didn't have anything in there to wait for them and say, hey, here is a pair of shoes. You know, please get a, take a shower if you want to. Yeah. Some of them are lost in the desert for days and days or weeks. And um, so we, uh, we became, you know, the, the beginners of that idea, I think, in Salva Vision. And, uh, together with other organizations, we start having conversation with the mayor of the town of Sasabe, Sonora. Yeah. And I just, it, it, it's good in my, uh, it goes good in my, uh, how do you say, it, in my favor that I speak Spanish, that I am, you know, a migrant, that I am somebody that wants to help and have a story because People want to do things, good things, but they don't know how sometimes, you know, in those small towns, mm -hmm. well, they don't have the money, they don't have how to help, you know. And everyone that I talked to in that town with that idea of opening a resource center, they said, oh, well, this is the best idea that we ever heard because we are so sad to see all these people and we can offer nothing, mm -hmm. but we don't have the money. We don't have a building. So I said, leave that to us. You know, we are going to work this together. Because from last year, from September of 2020 to January of 2021, mm -hmm. we were delivering about 700 meals a week to that little town. Oh, I wow. mean, we were working our tails off to deliver water, food, shoes, clothing, everything because people, Border Patrol was deporting that many people there every day. So we were, all these volunteers, we all got together here in Tucson and we said, you know, we need to organize, we need to do something, so we did. We started just pouring donations over there, but when winter came, it was cold, very, very cold. Mm -hmm. And we were delivering these donations in the environment, outside, in the street. So we said, we have to have something. We have to have a building. So we did, we organized and got the locals involved. Everybody wants to volunteer. Everybody said, I will be there. I will help if you have a place. And to make a long story short, we started organizing that in March. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. of 2021. Uh, okay. And in May 1st of 2021, we opened our resource center. Wow. It's amazing. We had fed almost 400 people since we opened because it is all every single day there is a hot meal in there. There is shoes, there is clothes, there is hygiene items if they need it. It's a shower that they can take. So it's wonderful. Wow. You know? Congratulations. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. And you know, I am so thankful. I am beyond grateful and thankful that, like I was telling you, my story, I take advantage of that because I can really lure people to have more conscious that this is real. Yeah. I am the product of something that happened. That I am the one that migrated due to violence, due to a war. You know, I didn't migrate because of poverty, but I know a lot of our people doing that nowadays because they had nothing to give their children after a hurricane wipe out their, their country, right? Or yeah. their towns or their villages. So we're doing that now. Wow. And so that's the, the support piece that we do with Salva Vision. So we do a lot of, a lot of great things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. impressive. Yes, that's yes, awesome. Yes. So Salva like I say, is not old like other organizations that have been around in this area for 20, 30 years, but we are growing strong. And I think that we are just at the right moment because the past four years have been very, very tough for this issue. Yeah. And I, I, I became more vocal with my story because, you know, not all of us wants to disclose yeah. the piece of your life that was very hard to tell, you yeah, know. Yeah, of course. But I saw the need because I found myself to be the voice of the voiceless. Mm -hmm. And I said, if with my story I can change things around, I can maybe change policies that will make this immigration issue more humane you know, we need humanitarian policies. Mm -hmm. They would not send people miles and miles away to cross, and they think that they're gonna walk seven days and they're gonna come out alive. That's not true. But we need to change that. So I, I have been doing this for the past five years, you know, and I won't stop mm -hmm. because it's not getting better. Yeah. We are going backwards with this policies. We are not really accomplishing with the new administration the, what we wanted it to see. Yeah. You know, the borders are still close to asylum seekers in large numbers because we see them every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happened is when these people cannot do the right thing to go and present themselves to an officer and tell them, I'm fleeing violence. If I go back to my country, I will get killed. These people go through the, through the desert, you know. So what we're doing is increasing the, increasing the business for the cartels, because mm. they take advantage of these people. Oh my God, they do, and yeah. they don't have a soul. They don't care if a woman is crossing with a tiny baby in her arms. Yeah, Border Patrol just rescued four days ago a mother that was in Sasovic 
using our services after she was returned, and then she did it again in class with her four-year-old daughter. And uh, they were walking for a day and a half, had no water. Thank God she got rescued. But she could have been another, you know, story. Yeah. Another tragic story that, that she was done in the desert with her baby. Mm-hmm. So this is what these policies do, and that's why I cannot stop. And I hope my story helps, you know, to understand that this is not new. Migration is not new. Mm-hmm. It's being done since Jesus' times. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes on, Yeah, you know. But now this is my time. Mm-hmm. Maybe later on when I'm not around anymore, it will be somebody else's time, you know, to tell their story and be the voice of these people that had no chance mm-hmm. to tell their story, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. Wow, I really, <laughs> I just really appreciate you because it's, it's, I see this like really strong duality in kind of like your whole life, like this really intense and traumatic experience that you had that you shared in the beginning and how you are at a place now where you can like share and how you've kind of made it like your life's mission and yeah. you've turned that like pain and suffering and trauma into like action like that's really beautiful and that's really yeah. hard that's really yeah. hard to do yeah so i like really admire you for like <laughs> you. just wow like for thank sharing you. and your yes. work is incredible just thank you yeah it's, it's yeah. really hard to do i, I just yeah I'm, I'm speechless honestly i don't even know what to say uh, like thank it's, you yeah no this is uh, this is beautiful this is great and every day that we um probably save the life is paid for it yeah yeah it's beautiful and um Again, I don't do this alone, you know. I might be right there in the desert putting water or taking donations or whatever, but I have so many people behind us and mm-hmm. with this, the heart of love for migrants and asylum seekers and their children and their story, and they're painful, yeah. you know. They're just, mine is ju- my story is just one of thousands, thousands, you know, and they're, pretty much the same level mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah we'll move on and you know um, I really invite everybody to check our website you know it has a lot of good interesting articles from the newspapers from documentaries on my story and our stories and it's really neat okay that's a good action item to for the audience then to yes. check out Salva Vision's website and yes see all their resources yes. all their videos that they have yeah yeah okay yeah yeah please follow us <laughs> wonderful i do have one more question before okay. we conclude okay. um so from your perspective what what would policy reform look like in the united states to stop like this from happening ever again like what is what do you think needs to happen well i think like i was telling you i mean i am not an expert in policies you know yeah. i was a social worker and i just devoted myself to foster care I really did mm-hmm. um, but I really believe that if it's a group of people that sit together in a table and talk with an expert in humanitarian mm. uh, rights and 
and with stories you know listen to the stories and if that will you know to me deterrence is the worst thing that they have done yeah so it is horrible how this wall that was built in the past four years has killed so many people because you know you think you're going to stop this and it's not ever going to stop that way mm. you know create jobs create opportunities mm. people wants to come to work you know why don't create visas like in the past you know long many years ago they used to do that when mexico would have had hundreds of thousands of people to cross legally come and work in the fields go back home you know that's where you want to be mm-hmm. you know, create that kind of opportunities you know start in the root of the problem and the root of the problem of this massive migration is the corrupted governments in our countries and i know that because we had ours in our country you know and i think if that never stopped migration is never going to stop so they have to go through the root of the problem Mm -hmm. i think and like i was telling you awareness education opportunities you know in these countries and maybe that helps but in here in the united states i think if the government sit sit down and have a conversation you know i was at the white house with a lot of uh, lawmakers I was invited, and I didn't know what the heck I was going to say, but all I said is my story because I thought, oh, my God, I've never been in that level, you know. I'm just, you know, (laughs) a daily person doing my work. (laughs) And I was invited, and I said, okay, so let's bring it in. I'm just going to say what I see. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, those lawmakers were crying. They were crying to hear story after story that I see every day in those border towns. Mm And I said, the, the problem is that people who are creating these policies, they don't know those stories. Yeah. They've never been in there. So I think if we just can change that a little bit, so it's not just in paper mm-hmm. and in writing, you know, you're dealing with humans, right. with people, and it's global. I mean, this is crazy. It's a global situation. Mm-hmm. But in this part of the country, in the southern border, it is painful what we see every day. Yeah. And I was telling you, we have a graveyard in our beautiful desert in Arizona. Just in July, we had 43 bodies were found wow. of migrants. And most of them are from Guatemala. So go back to Guatemala. What's going on in Guatemala mm-hmm. that everybody is leaving this country? Let's work in this country. Let's help these people. Right. Okay, we don't want them in the United States. Okay, we have, I think we have the ability to create policies that will go to the root of the problem mm-hmm. and work from there, Yeah. I think. Otherwise, I always say prevention is better than intervention. Yeah, oh yeah. 100%, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I'm all the time chasing after fires and putting them off and, oh my God, where is the next one? when we can start working together way back in the beginning and in the root of this, you know. Yeah. So hopefully we'll avoid death in the desert. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Yes. Yeah, and then like you said, there there does seem to be such a disconnect between like policymakers and like what happens on the ground. Yes. That's something that has been brought up in a couple interviews now, and yeah, it's disappointing. But I I do yeah. I, I agree with you. Someone yeah. needs to be at the table to like share yeah. the stories. It needs to be part of the policymaking process. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, thank you so, so much, Dora. I, wow, just again, really appreciate you sharing your story, all the details, just wow. I hope my English was understandable. Oh, please, <laughs> of course. It was, you're perfect. It was perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, La próxima en español. Está bien. <laughs> está bien. Okay, well, thank you so much. Yes. And thanks to the audience for tuning in.